Welcome to Primary Cast, your unofficial study group for the ASIM primary exam. I'm Charlotte Durand and I'm your host, and each episode I'm joined by a special guest to cover some of the core content from the ASIM primary exam. All of the study notes and the transcripts from these episodes are available online at asimprimarypodcast.com. And don't forget, I'm always happy to hear your feedback. Jump on and leave me a review. Let me know what you like about the podcast, if you have any suggestions for things that we can change a little bit. Because at the end of the day, I'm doing this so that I can help you guys get through your exams and move on to other things that you want to be doing with your life. Today's episode, we're going to be covering cardiovascular and circulatory physiology, and I'm joined by Dr. Nicola Pearson. Let's get into it. So today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Nicola Pearson, who's an ED reg working with me in Darwin, who's just coming towards the end of her six months in ICU. Nicola is from the UK, where she worked for four years before moving to Australia. She's finished her primaries earlier this year. Congratulations. And um, when she's not at work, you can find her in the garden, running on the beach or camping and making the most of the dry, which is the best time of year in Darwin. Nicola, thank you so much for coming and sitting down with me today. Thanks. We're going to be talking about cardiac and circulation physiology, which is an important topic uh, to get your head around when preparing for both the MCQ and the VIVA. Um, We're going to do mostly cardiology stuff first and then a bit of circulation towards the end. So starting off with ECGs, can you tell me what does each section of the ECG trace represent? So the P wave represents atrial depolarization. The PR is atrial depolarization and AV nodal delay. The QRS complex is ventricular depolarization. And the T wave is ventricular repolarization. Great. And what are the typical ECG features of hyperkalemia? So, typical ECG features are peaked T waves, P wave flattening and loss of P waves, wide or bizarre QRSs, sinusoidal ECG patterns, ventricular arrhythmias, and asystole. And can you explain the electrophysiological changes that cause ST segment change in myocardial infarction? So first there is abnormally rapid repolarization from infarcted muscle. So that's due to accelerated opening of potassium channels. Then you get decreased resting membrane potential due to loss of intracellular potassium. And then slowed depolarization of affected cells compared to normal cells. Thank you. Um, That question... I swear I spent so long trying to understand it and then I just ended up memorising those three lines. (laughs) (laughs) Did the same. (laughs) Okay, so the next topic is cardiac conduction. So describe the normal cardiac conduction pathway. So normal cardiac conduction begins in the SA node, which is the pacemaker. The conduction spreads through the atria via three internodal pathways it then moves to the AV node down the bundle of his, uh, the right and left bundle branches, which have anterior and posterior fascicles on the left, uh, travels through Purkinje fibers and then to ventricular muscle. It does a left side of the septum first to the apex from endo to epicardial surfaces. And what are the common mechanisms that cause abnormalities of cardiac conduction and what are their clinical consequences? So these can be abnormal pacemakers such as ectopic beats, sinus arrest, atrial or ventricular fibrillation, re-entry circuits such as different tachyarrhythmias, 
conduction deficits or blocks, such as heart blocks or bundle branch blocks, uh, prolonged repolarization, like in long QT syndrome, accessory pathways, like in Wolf-Parkinson-White, or a number of electrolyte disturbances. What conditions may predispose to increased automaticity? So things like ischemic heart disease, scarring, so from previous repairs of congenital heart defects, structural heart disease, underlying channelopathies, electrolyte imbalances, sympathomimetic agents, or infiltrative uh, cardiac disease. So next up, we're going to talk about cardiac action potentials. Nicola, can you describe the action potential of a cardiac pacemaker cell? So the pre-potentials first, which begins at minus 60, it's initially due to potassium efflux, then completed by calcium influx through calcium T-channels. The action potential begins at minus 40, and that's due to influx of calcium with L-type calcium channels. And then we have repolarization due to potassium efflux with no plateau phase. And how does sympathetic and parasympathetic stimulation change the pre-potential? So sympathetic stimulation, uh, so we have noradrenaline, which binds to beta-1 receptors and raises CAMP. This causes an increase in opening of L-type calcium channels and calcium influx. And then this increases the slope of the pre-potential and increases the firing rate of the pacemaker. For parasympathetic stimulation, we have acetylcholine, which binds to the muscarinic receptor and decreases CAMP. This results in both slowing of the calcium channel opening and opening of special potassium channels, which counter the potassium efflux decay. This leads to a greater fall in prepotential, which decreases the slope of the prepotential and the firing rate. Can you describe the action potential of a ventricular muscle cell? So the resting membrane potential lies at minus 90 millivolts. We then have phase zero, which is rapid depolarization due to opening of voltage-gated sodium channels. Phase one, which is rapid repolarization from closure of the sodium channels. Then phase two, which is the plateau phase, and that's due to opening of voltage-gated calcium channels. Then phase three is due to repolarization after closure of calcium channels. And phase four uh, is the resting membrane potential set up by sodium-potassium ATPase. And can you describe the major differences between a ventricular muscle action potential and a pacemaker cell potential? So ventricular muscle has a greater negative resting resting membrane potential, so minus 90 millivolts, has fast depolarization through sodium versus slower calcium-dependent depolarization in pacemaker cells. There's no prepotential or automaticity in ventricular muscle, and the plateau phase in ventricular uh, muscle exists, but not in pacemaker. So the next topic is the cardiac cycle. So starting with systole, please describe the pressure and volume changes in the left ventricle. You might be asked to draw the pressure volume loop. Okay, so I'm going to start with the start of systole, which is isovolumetric contraction. The mitral valve closes, the ventricle contracts, and the pressure rises sharply without a change in volume. When the left ventricular pressure is greater than the aortic pressure, the aortic valve opens. Then comes the phase of ventricular ejection. The pressure rises to a plateau and the volume falls during ejection. 
the normal stroke volume is 70 to 90 mils. The next phase is the start of diastole, which is isovolumetric relaxation. So the momentum of ejected blood is overcome by the arterial back pressure and the aortic valve closes. The pressure then falls, but the volume in the ventricle stays the same. When ventricular pressure is less than atrial pressure, the mitral valve then opens. The next phase is filling, where the mitral valve is open uh, and blood rushes in. The end diastolic volume at the end of this is 130 mils. Then you have atrial systole, which is the final part of ventricular filling prior to systole, which has a small increase in volume and pressure in the ventricle. Describe how the waveforms of an ECG relate to the cardiac cycle. So atrial systole starts just after the P wave and ventricular systole starts near the end of the R wave and ends just after the T wave. And please describe or draw the jugular venous pressure wave and outline the origins of the fluctuations in this wave. So this wave is it's useful to draw out. Um, so you've got, essentially it looks like a little M to begin with. So you've got uh, two upward deflections and then a descent, and then after that a single upward and then a descent. Um, and they're labelled A and C for the first two upward deflections, and then V is the second one. So talking through what these are, atrial systole is represented by the A wave, which um, is from regurgitation from blood when the atria contract. The C deflection is the tricuspid bulge back into the atria during isovolumetric contraction. The little bit that dips in between the A and the C occurs when the atria relaxes and blood flows into the ventricle. The X descent is the ventricular contraction and the downward movement of the tricuspid. The V deflection is atrial filling and relaxation prior to the tricuspid opening and then the Y descent is ventricular filling. So next up we're going to talk about cardiac output. What factors determine cardiac output? Cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. So stroke volume is related to preload, so that's the degree of stretch prior to contraction, and afterload, which is the resistance to flow of the heart, and the intrinsic contractility of the myocardial cells. Heart rate responds to sympathetic or parasympathetic stimulation. And what methods can be used to measure cardiac output? Um, so the direct FIC method or the thermal dilution method are the ones to know about. So the FIC method relies on the FIC principle, which states that the amount of substance taken up by an organ per unit time is equal to the arteriovenous concentration difference times the blood flow. For the heart, we use oxygen. Um, the thermal or indicator dilution method involves injecting the substance into a vein and doing a serial sampling of arterial blood. This is then plotted and extrapolated to find the circulation time. Um, in practice, though, these days, we usually use ultrasound Doppler through echo. It seems like almost an outdated question. Doesn't it? <laughs> Just learning Still this stuff. Still comes up. <laughs> Historical. Um, can you please uh, describe, or you may be asked to draw, the frank Starling curve as it relates to the cardiac muscle? So the important points of the frank Starling curve are that the x-axis is ventricular end diastolic volume, and the y-axis is stroke volume. So the curve um, arches up and to the right with dashed lines at the ends of the lower lines, 
uh, where there is high end diastolic volume. These dashed lines indicate portions of the ventricular function curves where maximum contractility has been exceeded. And what factors shift the frank Starling curve? So things that shift the curve up and to the left are circulating catecholamines, inotropic agents such as digoxin or caffeine or adrenergic agents, sympathetic stimulation or increased myocardial mass. Things that shift the curve down to the right, or down and to the right, are metabolic changes such as acidosis, hypercarbia or hypoxia, vagal or parasympathetic stimulation, pharmacological depressants such as barbiturates, intrinsic depression as in myocardial failure and hypothermia. And what clinical scenarios can cause a decrease in cardiac output? Um, So arrhythmias or heart blocks cause abnormal heart rate, uh, reduced preload, so for example from reduced venous return or cardiac tamponade, increased afterload and reduced contractility from ischemia, venoms or drugs. So the next topic is myocardial oxygen demand. So what factors influence myocardial oxygen consumption? So these include intramyocardial tension, which is dependent on pressure, which is the afterload and the contractility, um, the radius, so the preload, and the wall thickness. Also, the contractile state of the heart and the heart rate can influence oxygen consumption. The pressure load increases oxygen consumption more than a volume load. And how does decreasing a patient's heart rate improve symptoms of angina? So decreasing the heart rate decreases the oxygen demand. So at a slower heart rate, there is more time for coronary circulation, which occurs in diastole. Now we're going to talk about autoregulation. What is autoregulation of tissue blood flow? So autoregulation refers to the capacity of tissues to regulate their own blood flow, which remains relatively constant despite moderate changes in perfusion pressure. This is achieved by altering vascular resistance. And what are the proposed mechanisms involved in autoregulation? So the first mechanism is myogenic, so intrinsic contractile response of smooth muscle to stretch. So as the pressure rises, vascular smooth muscles surrounding the vessel contract to maintain wall tension. The second mechanism is the metabolic theory. So production of vasodilator metabolites by active tissue cause vessel vasodilation and increased flow. We then have endothelial products. So these are vasoconstrictors such as endothelin or thromboxin A2 and vasodilators. <coughs> Sorry and vasodilators, such as nitric oxide and prostacycline. We then have circulating neurohumeral substances. So the vasoconstrictors are adrenaline, noradrenaline, vasopressin and angiotensin II, and the vasodilators are the kinins and ANP, so atrial natriuretic peptide. We also have neural. Sympathetic uh, is your alpha-adrenergic receptors, which cause vasoconstriction, and your beta-adrenergic receptors, which cause vasodilation. And we have parasympathetic stimulation. So this is vasodilation uh, through our muscarinic receptors. And what are some local factors that can lead to vasodilation? So hypoxia, hypercarbia, increased local temperature, hyperkalemia, adenosine, 
lactate, prostaglandins, and histamine. So the next topic is baroreceptors. What are baroreceptors? So these are stretch receptors located in the adventitia layer of vessels. And where are they located? Uh, there's some in the aortic arch and the carotid sinus. There's also baroreceptors in the walls of the right and left atria at the SVC and IVC entrances and within the pulmonary circulation. And what is their mechanism of action in hypotension? So baroreceptors are really sensitive to changes in pulse pressure. They increase firing in response to raised blood pressure, which travels via the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves to the medulla and inhibits the tonic sympathetic discharge. So it also excites um, vagal innervation of the heart. Um, So when hypotension occurs, the arterial baroreceptors are less stimulated because they are less stretched. So you have reduced baroreceptor discharge, which results in reduced signaling to the medulla and an overall increase in sympathetic discharge. So this increases the heart rate and stimulates vasoconstriction, raising the blood pressure. It also reduces vagal drive. So now we're going to talk about cerebral blood flow. What factors affect cerebral blood flow? So cerebral blood flow is affected by intracranial pressure, mean arterial pressure, mean venous pressure, local factors such as pH and PCO2, uh, which influence constriction and dilation of cerebral arterioles, and blood viscosity. And what is meant by the term autoregulation of blood flow as it relates to the cerebral circulation? So this is the process by which cerebral blood flow is maintained at a constant level despite variation of arterial pressure. So we can maintain a constant flow over the mean arterial pressure range of 65 to 140 millimetres of mercury. And what is the Munro-Kelly Doctrine? The Munro-Kelly Doctrine states that the volume of blood and the CSF and brain tissue must be relatively constant. So when intracranial pressure rises, cerebral vessels are compressed, resulting in reduced cerebral blood flow. A rise in venous pressure also causes decreased cerebral blood flow by decreasing effective perfusion pressure and compressing cerebral vessels. And how is brain perfusion maintained in a brain injury? So the aim is to maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure. With a high ICP, the body increases mean arterial pressure to maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure. A raised MAP results in hypertension and reflex bradycardia. And what proportion of total body oxygen does the brain consume? 20%. And what energy substrates can be used by the brain? The brain can use glucose, glutamate and amino acids in starvation. Now, we alluded to this before, but can you describe what is the Cushing reflex? So the Cushing reflex occurs um, when there is an increase in intracranial pressure, which compromises blood flow to the medulla. This leads to increased sympathetic outflow from the vasomotor centre. Blood pressure increases in attempt to restore medullary flow. So it causes stretch of baroreceptors, leading to vagal stimulation and resultant bradycardia. going to talk about coronary blood flow. So describe the factors that control blood flow to the myocardium. 
So these include pressure differences. The flow depends on the gradient between arteries and veins or the external compression from the muscle. So during systole, ventricular muscle pressure limits the flow, especially to the subendocardium of the left ventricle. There are also local factors. So these control the radius of the blood vessels. Hypoxia causes vasodilation in the heart and nitrous oxide also causes vasodilation. There There are also neurogenic factors, so parasympathetic and sympathetic, where you have alpha causing vasoconstriction and beta causing vasodilation, and you've got circulating catecholamines as well. And again, blood viscosity. So now we're going to talk about renal blood flow. What percentage of cardiac output goes to the kidneys? 25%. And how is renal blood flow regulated? So um, it can be regulated by substances and chemicals. So these include noradrenaline, which constricts renal vessels and stimulates renin release, dopamine, which dilates the renal vein, angiotensin II, which is an arteriolar constrictor, prostaglandin, which increases cortical flow and decreases medullary flow, acetylcholine, which causes vasodilation, and a high protein which increases blood flow. We also have renal nerves. So stimulation of the renal nerves uh, causes increased renal secretion, increases the juxtaglomerular sensitivity and increased sodium reabsorption and renal vasoconstriction. Then a fall in blood pressure causes vasoconstriction. We then have autoregulation. So renal vascular resistance varies with pressure to keep the renal blood flow constant. And that's independent of innovation. So the final topic is shock. So how is blood pressure maintained in the setting of acute blood loss? So the answer to this question can be divided into a time scale. So seconds to minutes, minutes to hours, and then longer term changes. So seconds to minutes, you've got baroreceptors, which sense the drop in blood pressure and decrease firing, which leads to increased sympathetic outflow. Chemoreceptors, where stimulation leads to peripheral vasoconstriction and a rise in BP. And there's the central nervous system ischemic receptors, which are also activated to raise the blood pressure. In minutes to hours, you've got the renin-angiotensin system becomes activated There are blood volume changes and there are fluid shifts throughout the capillaries. Over the longer term, you can have renal compensation via aldosterone, blood volume changes and a modification to salt intake. Describe the non-cardiovascular compensatory responses to shock. So these include the renal response, where efferent arterioles constrict more than the afferent arterioles. Renal plasma flow is decreased more than the GFR. Sodium retention, which includes retaining nitrogenous products of metabolism and can cause uremia. Angiotensin II, you've got plasma renin, which causes angiotensin II release, which therefore causes a raise in blood pressure and stimulation of the thirst centre in the brain. Antidiuretic hormone, which causes retention of sodium and water. Aldosterone, which is stimulated by circulating angiotensin II. Adrenal stimulation where you have the adrenal medulla secreting catecholamines and an increased circulation of noradrenaline from increased discharge of sympathetic noradrenergic nerves. 
What other factors influence the vasomotor centre? So you can have direct stimulation via CO2 and hypoxia. There is an excitatory input from the cortex via the hypothalamus and from pain pathways, muscles and chemoreceptors. There are inhibitory inputs from the cortex, which also come via the hypothalamus, from the lung and from baroreceptors. Okay, so that brings us to the end of cardiac and circulatory physiology. Thanks very much for going through those questions with me. It's all right. Much appreciated. Um, now, what I like to do at the end of every episode is get um, some pearls of wisdom for people who are studying for the exam. I'm wondering if you could share your biggest uh, tips or advice for anyone who is setting up to start studying for primaries. So I think the biggest thing uh, for both is just to do lots and lots of practice. So for the written, just do lots and lots and lots of online questions, go through all of the MCQ banks um, and just practice, practice. And then for the vivas, find as many people as you possibly can to ask you the questions. Um, And using different people to ask the questions is really good because you feel nervous every time you do it the first time with a new person. Um, And it's being able to talk through that nervousness that I think is really useful for the viva. Absolutely. I think I can remember being like on a shift working and people being like, do you want me to ask you questions? And me just being like, that is the last possible thing that (laughs) that I want. But it is really important to get that like feeling nervous in front of people, especially if, you know, especially if you like admire them or they're your colleague or there's someone who you really don't want them to think that you're stupid. Yeah, (laughs) because you will feel uncomfortable in the exam. Like the whole thing's uncomfortable. So just getting used to feeling uncomfortable is really good. You're never going to feel good. So you just have to get used to feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, love it. Um, That's fabulous advice. And um, it's really timely for a lot of people who are coming up to their vivas very soon. Um, thanks again and hopefully we can get you back maybe for another episode in the future thanks (laughs) does it make you feel nervous to go through these questions again? a little bit (laughs) this one's also quite ICU I think isn't it? very ICU I've just prepared all the ICU questions (laughs) for you (laughs) thanks (laughs) sorry you got the JVP yeah (laughs) true true (laughs)